Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Welcome to CBC this morning. This week has started off better than last week. If you get that joke, you are with us. If you don't, sit in that for a little while. Um, welcome to Crossroads. It is spring break and spring forward Sunday, or as I call it, the only day my kid might sleep into the sevens. So we celebrate this day in our household, and uh, we're going to read some scripture this morning. But before we get there, at Crossroads, if you don't know, we're an elder-led church, and we have a couple boards that help lead our church. It's an elder board and a deacon board. And we are in the process of admitting someone new on the deacon board. His name's Mitch Walgamuth. He's been here for, I think, about 19, 20 years. Long time, everybody. I like to put it in perspective. He's been here as long as, I think if I go back 20 years, I was a junior in high school, right? I just do that for the people. It's a service we provide. And um, he has been around for a while, served for a long time. And I say that because... Per the biblical standards, uh, there are some qualifications that elders need to live up and live into, and you'll find it if you want to in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 8 to 13. And so we have a 30-day clock at CBC because we value leadership and quality of character and leadership. And so if you know any reason, given that list, that, that maybe he shouldn't be on the deacon board, we'd love to know that too. Uh, you can email elders at crossroadsbible.org, but I've done Mitch for a while and he's a great man and I'm excited for him to serve with us as we serve the Lord in the Flow Mo area. Sound good? Like every week, everybody, we come together and it is so easy in our culture to be critical and this is not that space. This is not a space where we sit here and we look for what's wrong. This is a space where we sit here and we look for where God is moving and what he's speaking to us today. Because if you're in the room or you're watching online, God is speaking to us. Each and every time we open scripture, each and every time we pray, we have an active relationship with a very, very living God. And so today, we're going to begin just by praying and taking a moment to pray silently to ourselves, just to ask that the Holy Spirit might speak to us to shed the critical culture that we come from and come into a place of a culture where we contribute to the conversation of faith. We're going to pray that the Holy Spirit speaks this morning because God is near. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that we can be here. I'm thankful that we can come together and worship you. I'm, I'm thankful that today we can have a conversation about our perspective and what we see. As we open the scripture today, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Guide our thoughts and show us more of who God is so that we can more fully and deeply worship a God who's worthy of it. I'd ask if you're comfortable, take just a few seconds and say a prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit might guide you this morning and speak to you this morning. I ask you pray for me, that God might use the preparation and his scripture to do a work and show us all more of him.
pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Matthew chapter 9, we're in a series on the kingdom of God, talking about the deliverability of the kingdom of God. Jesus walked up on a mountain, gave the best sermon of all time, and then walked down and immediately started delivering on his promises that he gave in the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been in it for the last seven weeks. We have two weeks left. And today we have two stories. And what these stories are going to do is they're going to challenge our understanding of our perception of reality. There's a book on my nightstand by one of my favorite authors. His name is David Foster Wallace. He wrote a novel, just one, before he died. It's called Infinite Jest. It is about this thick. It has been on my nightstand for about five years, right? <laughs> you probably have the same thing. We have one book, and that is my Everest, and one day I will get there. And I love him as a writer because I think he's really good at talking about, not a Jesus follower, by the way, but I think he's really good at talking about who we are as a culture, parsing out our culture and saying this is what we struggle with. He gave a commencement address in 2005, and he gave it at Kenyon College, and he started it like this. It's one of my favorite commencement addresses. He said, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water, Right? It's the idea that your perception of your reality shapes your reality. What we see in front of us oftentimes defines the world we live in, and that becomes the lenses through which we look at life. Perception is our reality. The way that we see is the way that we interpret life around us. I was speaking with uh, our youth pastor here, Nick, this week, and I remember one of the first times I met Nick. He said a phrase to me that has stuck with me. We have one two-and-a-half-year-old about to have a second kid in a couple weeks, and Nick has three slightly older children. And about four years ago, he looked at me and said, I am coming out of seven years of diapers. And I said, what? And he said, it's been seven years when one of my kids has been in diapers. I said, man, that is a biblical plague. You did something wrong, right? I'm going on year two and a half, and I'm about to reset that clock. I understand. And I have parents all around me saying, you'll get through it, you'll get out of it. But when you're in the middle of it, it is really difficult to see out of the reality that's right in front of you. I think we do it culturally all the time. There is an old tale used specifically about plurality of religion, and it's around an elephant. You've probably heard it. And so the tale goes like this. You have four men or five men or three men. You can have as many as you want. And they ask you to describe what you're seeing. And they're all blind men. And they're all around an elephant. And one of them grabs the elephant by the leg and said, this thing that I'm holding is strong and sturdy and firm. It's like a tree trunk. And one who's holding the, um, the elephant's uh, uh, snout, I forgot the name of it, thing, you know what I'm talking about? Thank trunk. I'm going to get there, everybody. We skipped an hour today, all right? The trunk of the elephant says, you're wrong. It is not firm like a tree trunk. It is bendy and it is flexible and I can move it. And another one who has the stomach of the elephant says, you're both wrong. It's broad and flat and coarse. And one has the tusk and said, all of you are completely wrong. It's like a stone or an ivory and it's hard and it's pointy, right? The idea there is simply, and they use it talking about a plurality of religions to say that, look, we're all right in some capacity. Now, that breaks down when you talk about plurality of religion because that is coming from a perspective, but the point is simply all of these men chose to define their reality by the perspective that they experienced. We do it all the time. 
There's a really great article this week written by the Gospel Coalition, which is a website for Jesus people. And um, a guy named uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote it. And he said, right now in the church, and he said, I've been thinking about it for a year. He said, we've had some hard conversations about where people fall on race and where people fall on politics. And so he wrote an article and he laid out a chart. If you're watching online right now, we'll drop it in the comment section. If you're in the room, you can go find it in the comment section after this. Uh, but he lays out a chart and he said, hey, there's four different groupings and they're all encouragement based. So they, they're all assuming that people have the best intentions heading into the conversation. He says, there's the contrite, the compassionate, the careful, and the courageous in these conversations. And he says, this is what motivates you and this is where you're coming from because we all have a perspective that we enter the world with. The question is, do we understand our perspective and when are we called as followers of Jesus to see a different perspective than what we see? That's the question. Because at some point, if our perspective is only defined as what we see, I think we fall short of what Jesus saw. And those are our stories today. So in Matthew 9, we have two of them. We have a father who lost his daughter, and we have a woman who'd been sick for 12 years. And we're going to see what they see versus what everybody else saw. Let's dive in. In verse, I'm right up at the top in verse 17, 18. He starts by saying, as he was saying these things, a ruler came and bowed low before him, Jesus. And he said, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. Some context, Mark tells the same story as does a couple of the other Gospels, but Mark tells it and gives more detail. He says this man's name is Jarius. Jarius was a ruler in the synagogue where Jews came to worship. A couple things to know there that add context and depth to this man's plea. The synagogue rulers didn't love Jesus. The story of Jesus, and we're going to be in Easter in a couple weeks and we're going to see it full-fledged, but the story of Jesus is one of great compassion, but also one of great... Um, antagonistic kind of momentum that grows from the religious elite. He challenged the system. He said the way that you worship God isn't the way you're supposed to worship God. And in challenging their system, he challenged their power. And when you challenge men's power, if that's what they're after, they get mad at you and use their power against you. Ultimately, it led to the cross. And so this man was a leader in the Jewish church. Jesus is healing people and he's calling out the religious institution for not having the right heart behind their actions, saying they completely missed the point. It's not a hard stretch to say that Jarius does not like Jesus. (laughs) But you have this man whose kid is either dying or dead. And he says, at the end of the day, I'm a religious leader, but I'm a dad with a daughter and I can relate to that. And so he comes to Jesus. In some of the translations, it says that he literally bows before Jesus. He is willing to do anything to save his daughter. There's an interview that I remember now that I have a daughter by Ryan Reynolds, and he was on David Letterman. He said, I love my wife. I love my wife more than anything. I would take a bullet for my wife. I've told her that again and again and again. She is my everything. He said, the craziest thing happened, though, when I had my first daughter. He said that this kid was two minutes old, I didn't know this child at all. I took one look in her eyes and I realized that I would use my wife as a human shield to protect my daughter. (laughs) I was like, okay, you know? He said, it made no sense, but I would totally do it. It's amazing what we do when we're desperate because we love our kids. So Jarius comes as probably, you gotta understand, this is a last resort. This isn't his first option. What's to save his kid? And so he comes to Jesus and he says, my daughter just died, but lay your hand on her and she will live. 
So that, that begins our narrative. We're this act of desperation, hoping for things that other people don't see. And as Jesus gets up to go, literally gets up to go to the funeral of this girl, another woman interrupts. Look at the next verse. Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. But a woman who'd been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. A couple things to unpack in this story to grab depth of, of context is, one, this woman been bleeding for 12 years, so probably from when she was a teenager to now. If you bled in the first century world in a Jewish culture, you were ritually unclean, which meant that people didn't touch you, which meant that people didn't befriend you, which meant that you couldn't get married, which meant that you couldn't have kids. Women that didn't bear kids in the first century world were seen as pretty much worthless, this woman has lived a hard life. She was ritually unclean, so she couldn't, even, she couldn't even go to the temple or the synagogue. She couldn't even worship God with other people. Think about that. And it hadn't been happening for 12 days or 12 hours or 12 months. This has been her life for 12 full years. I think you have to understand the desperation that's building in both these stories and understand that this woman is way more desperate than many of us or any of us have ever, ever been. So she hears the stories of Jesus and she said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. She's pinning her hope and future. She's pinning her life because at this point it's kind of like Matthew's painting the picture of a dead girl and a living dead woman. And he's, she's saying, if only I could touch his cloak. That verse says, in some ways brought up some questions over time because I wonder why she says cloak here and we're going to get into that in just a second. I wonder why she didn't just say if I could touch any part of his body, if I could touch his heel or his big toe or his sandal or his cloak. I remember back in the day when I was a kid, I went to a couple golf tournaments and I, I just wanted a high five from, but I would have taken anything. Like I'm reaching out blindly, swatting at things, hoping I could touch a golfer as he walked by because they were famous people and I thought it'd make me a better golfer or something. You know, it did not work, everybody, right? And so you have this woman who says, I just want to touch her cloak. And, and when she says that, that is steeped with some Jewish tradition. So when God gives the law in the Old Testament, the thing that defined the Jewish people, when God gives the marker of who they were as a Jewish people, the glue that bound them together in the book of Numbers in chapter 15, he gives them instructions on what they wear. And I'll read a little bit for you. He says in Numbers 15, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them to make tassels for themselves on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a blue thread on the tassel of the corners. So, so it might not seem like much, but from the Old Testament law given, that idea of corners held significance. Because God said, you will put these tassels on the corners, and he's going to go on to say, and when you see those, you're going to pray the law, and you're going to be thankful that God delivered you from Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so all throughout the Old Testament, it's pointing to the picture of a Redeemer to come. It's pointing to the picture of a Messiah. It's pointing to the picture of somebody who will right the wrongs in the world and make the Jewish people not suffer anymore because God found Jewish people in suffering and he delivered them from suffering with Moses and Egypt. And the rest of the Old Testament is them trying to get back there. And so fast forward. As the, the legend of what would be the Messiah grows, the very last book, the very last chapter in the Old Testament, it's an often quoted verse, Malachi 4.2 says this. It says, Then... 
Those of you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, will rise with healing in his wings. So here's we've got to tie these two things together. That same word in the Hebrew for corners is what we see in the Hebrew for wings in Malachi. Because it really just means fringes. So, so there was this legend in the Jewish world that the Messiah would come and on the corners of his garment would be healing. So when this woman says, when she says, I just need to touch his cloak, the edges of his cloak, she's actually playing out in her head prophetic Messiah sayings about the ability for him to heal. She's hoping and praying that the legend of the healer is coming true right here and right now. And she'd seen and watched and heard about this Jesus person who gave a sermon and then who started doing things. And she said, I've heard it too. I just need to touch the edge of his cloak because that's where the healing's supposed to be, right there and right then. If I can just touch that, then I'll be healed. And so, you know, the story she does, when Jesus, um, after that, turned and saw her, he said, have courage, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed from that hour. A couple things that I don't want to overlook about this text. You know, this is the only time that we know of that Jesus used the word daughter. This is the only time that he looked at this woman that was overlooked, and he said, I see you, and I'm sorry for you. And it's been a theme each and every week in this series as we see Jesus heal. But we live in a culture sometimes where we meet brokenness with shame, where we meet brokenness with it's your fault, or I told you so, or only if you should have and would have and could have. In all of these stories, when Jesus meets brokenness, it's which intimacy and compassion and love. He looks at her and says, daughter, you are healed. He sees the ones that aren't seen. He heals the ones that are broken. And he doesn't meet them with shame or guilt. He meets them with compassion and forgiveness and love. It's a beautiful picture of how we're supposed to interact with the world around us. So he looks at this woman and he says, daughter, you are healed. Your faith has made you well. And he does that for a reason. Because if this woman approached Jesus with this idea, that if I touch the right part of his garment, that's going to make me well, he dispels that notion. He said, let me tell you something. Your right action didn't make you well. Your faith in who I am and what I could do made you well. He is destroying or shattering the idea that a formula delivered this woman and not faith delivered this woman. He is destroying the notion that she did X, Y, and Z, so now she's healed, because that, that is just meritocracy 101. That is the Jewish faith altogether. That is saying, if I do these things, then God will do what I want him to do, and that is not the religion we buy into. Our gospel is all about God acting because he didn't have to, not because we forced his hand. Our God, our God is all about loving us when we shouldn't have been loved, not because we earned it or deserved it or did the right thing, said the right thing, showed up to church the right amount of times, touched the right part of his garment. Jesus looks at this woman and said, it's not about the corners. It's about the faith that you had in the first place. It's about what my kingdom is built on, which is faith in my ability to deliver. So you have this woman who's made well. You have this, this woman who over and over and over again just wanted people to see her and be healed and finally in this moment, Jesus heals her. But Jesus keeps walking and says in the next verse, when Jesus entered the ruler's house where they were going all along the way, he saw the flute players in the disorderly crowd and he said, go away for the girl is not dead but asleep. She's not dead, but asleep. And, and you have to know a couple things. Uh, in the first century, when they had funerals, uh, they would hire mourners. The, the Mishnah is the oral interpretation of the law. 
So they were given the law, and then over years, they interpreted it. Rabbis would say, it says this, this is what it means, and they wrote that down. It's called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, there's literally a quote that says um, that even the poorest man in Israel should not hire fewer than two flutes and one professional wailing woman at a funeral. Don't do this for me, everybody, all right? So, so the point being that it was a ceremony that even if you didn't know anybody, you hired people to mourn with you. In a collective society, it showed our collective mourning together. When one person died, it's a part of the whole. We talked about at the beginning, this man was well-known. This man had influence. This man was a member in the community that had some kind of authority. And so... Jesus isn't walking into two flutes and a paid mourner. Jesus is walking into a house of people that are mourning, some paid and some not. So that's why it says in the text that he walked into a disorderly crowd because you had these people just wailing because that's what you're supposed to do. And it's sad. It's sad every time death occurs. So Jesus says in our text that she is simply asleep. And this is the part that I think is different from all the others. When Jesus says, when this man says, I've been healing people, I've been casting people out, I've been doing all these things to show that my way is different and my kingdom is different, this man Jarius comes to Jesus and says, I've got nothing else, please help me, please help me, my daughter is sick. When Jesus shows up and says, she is just asleep, everyone else looks and the next verse, they begin making fun of Jesus. Some versions said they laughed at him. It's like they're living in two different realities at this point. You have Jesus, and you have Jarius, and you have this woman that's been bleeding, and you have everybody else. Jesus said she's just asleep, and the rest of the crowd just laughs. First of all, if you're Jesus, <laughs> he's showing a lot of humility here not to be indignant, because I'd be like, guys, let me show you. But he doesn't. He's humble. He does. He doesn't have to prove himself. That's what meekness is all about. But it's like they're seeing two different realities in the water they're swimming in. Baseball season's coming up. I love baseball. My sister hates baseball. She will look at me often and say, baseball is less exciting than grass growing. Um, I don't take it personally, uh, but I, I just know at that point that we are watching two very different things. I remember we went to a game a few years ago with some friends, and we sat up top, and, and this one man for the Rangers was up to bat. And he had a single, he had a triple, and he had a home run in the game. So if you're a fan of baseball, you know that if he gets a double, that's a big deal. He's going to hit for something called the cycle, which is not uncommon, but it's not common either. It doesn't happen much. Most players never do it. And if you're lucky enough to go to a game where that happens, um, you consider yourself to be lucky in the first place. So this guy gets up there, and he actually hits a double. And I'm excited, because this is really cool. And I'm with some friends who never played baseball and didn't like God's game. And so I stand up and start applauding. And these guys are just sitting there like having a conversation. I literally turned and yelled at them and said, get off your seat and clap, right? And they said, what just happened? And I said, it's like we're watching two very different, two different games. My sister watches it and says, nothing ever happens. I watch it and say, there's a game inside the game you don't see. 
You don't understand what's happening with the shift or the fact that this guy's a fastball hitter. It's a one-two count. It's probably going to be an off-speed pitch, which means it's slower, which means he's probably going to pull it to left field if he's a right-handed batter, which means that you have to shade the corners. There's a game inside the game that people don't see. If you don't know the game, your perception is your reality. Jesus is looking at this perception in reality completely different than the people around him. The question is, and always has been, what do you see? Jesus walks and talks and sees things differently than the people around him. And so I also love how Mark Twain puts it. When I do weddings, I quote Mark Twain at the beginning. And he talks about how being married, love in general, gives you a new lens through which to look at the world. It's it's kind of the honeymoon phase of every relationship. That that being married is going to change how you see Mondays now. Mondays are still Mondays, but it's more exciting because now you're Mondays and married. If you got married a week and a half ago, you're like, spring forward is awesome. We should do this every weekend. No, we should not, everybody, you know? He has got this poem and he writes about it. And he said, love makes two fractional lives a whole. It gives a new gladness to the sunshine, a new fragrance to the flowers, a new beauty to the earth, a new mystery to life. It'll give new revelation to love, new depth to sorrow, new impulse to worship. In that day, the scales will fall from our eyes and we will look upon a new world. We got to ask the question as followers of Jesus, what are we seeing? And how is what we're seeing shaping the way we live? How is our present and our perception shaping our reality? So Jesus walks in this room and he says, She's sleeping, and they laugh. And then the end of the story Jesus had the crowd put outside. He went in, he gently took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the news of this spread throughout the region. See, these two stories share something in common. This father and Jesus and this woman saw a completely different reality than what was unfolding right in front of them in the first place. They saw a different reality than what everyone else saw. It's literally the definition of faith, the building block of the kingdom. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is built on faith. My kingdom is built on you believing that what you see isn't all that you get. My kingdom is built on an alternate reality that's unfolding right here and right now because there's more to life than what you see, the goods and the bads. The question as followers of Jesus is simply, what do we see? This is water. In the Old Testament, when they talk about the corners, you know why God had them do that? He goes on to say in Numbers 15, you're going to put these blue tassels on the edge of your quarters because if you don't, if you don't, you're going to forget and follow your heart. If you don't, you're going to forget and follow your emotions. If you don't, you're going to forget in a generation that I'm the one that delivered you. You're going to believe you don't need me and you're going to buy into your own goodness and not my greatness. And that's the cycle of the Old Testament is that the people forgot the goodness of God and they fell away from it and then they hurt because of it. And so he has them do these things as a common grace to show them that what they see in front of them hasn't always been the truth. It is the simple idea of why we learn history in elementary school and middle school and high school and hopefully after. It's because, you know, that phrase that those don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. Jesus is saying, don't believe all of what you see. The kingdom of God is here. And here's the difference between followers of Jesus and people that don't see the world the way that Jesus asks us to. He says, followers of Jesus, our circumstances don't define the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God defines our circumstance and situation. And there's a big difference there. 
It's a huge difference in literally how we see the world. We see it. We see the world right here and right now with eternity in mind. As followers of Jesus, our present perspective is formed with eternity, and we, we get to tell the story of eternity every day. That's the reality we live into, right here and right now. And that's the reality that these people believed in our stories. That's the reality that others couldn't see, is that being in the kingdom is seeing life in light of eternity. It's the reality of what they were living into. But, but here's where we have to stop down and talk about, is that not everybody's healed. Not every child is raised from the dead. And not every sick person finds a cure. That's the truth, you know? And here's the difference between a health and wealth prosperity gospel and the gospel of Jesus. It's simply saying that you might not find your healing right now, but God's not done yet. And your healing is dependent upon how much faith you had. He didn't say to the woman, you had enough faith, you're healed. He said, you had faith, you're healed. It's not about believing more or doing more or giving more. It's about understanding that God is in the process of rebuilding and resurrecting and restoring the world to good. Again, he's fighting against the evil that we come in contact with that makes us or brings pain to the world. And it's about us seeing the perspective of the eternality of God and what he's doing in the world around us. One writer said it like this, praiseworthy faith does not doubt God's ability to act, but it does not presume to know how he will choose to act. Because here's what these healings done. The last seven weeks of this series we've been in, it's a foretaste of the kingdom to come. It's God saying, I'm not done with the world yet. I'm not done with your life yet. I'm not done with your pain yet. I will turn it into something good and better. That's why he says in the scriptures in Psalm 30, 11, he says, you've turned my mourning into dancing. In Revelation 21, he says, ultimately, I will wipe every tear from your eye. There will be no more pain. It's the reality of the perception of the people that follow Jesus that live and tell the story of eternity. Because we know that this isn't the end. The grave doesn't stop us. And that for followers of Jesus, there's an expiration date on pain and suffering. One of the best ways I've seen this talked about was I watched a funeral of uh, Lois Evans. She is the wife of Tony Evans at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. And his son gave a eulogy. It's, it's so good. I was going to paraphrase it and take credit, but I feel like I should read it. And so um, I'm just going to read what he wrote at his mom's funeral. He said this. He said, I was wrestling with God. Because I said, if we had victory in your name, didn't you hear us when we were praying? Didn't you see the cancer? Didn't you hear us? Why don't you do what we were asking of you? Because your word says, if we abide in you and your word abides in us, we can ask whatever we will and it'll be given to us. Your word tells us that if we ask according to your will, that you will hear us. Your word is telling us in Mark 11 that if we pray, believing, and we will receive, we will be anxious for nothing, and through prayer and supplication, we'll make our requests known to God. He said, where are you? Because my mom is dead. He said, I was wrestling with God, and he answered. And God said, number one, you don't understand the nature of my victory because I didn't answer your prayer just the way that you want. doesn't mean I haven't already answered your prayer anyway. He said, because victory was already given to your mom. 
There was always only two answers to your prayers. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family or she was going to be with family. Either she was going to be well taken care of or she was going to be well taken care of. Victory belongs to me because of what I've already done for you. The two answers to your prayers are yes and yes because victory belongs to Jesus. And I know that it was hard for you to sit there and watch your mom die, but don't let that belittle the fact of how hard it was for me to watch my son die so she could live. There are always two answers to your question, yes and yes, because my grace is sufficient. Thank you, Lord. The eternality of the promises of Jesus reset our perspectives in the presence because we tell a story of eternality, of the eternity of Jesus every day, right here and right now. This is water. That's why literally at funerals we quote Thessalonians and say, hey, we grieve and mourn differently because we have hope. That's why we celebrate Easter in a couple weeks. That's why he says in Hebrews that this is faith, the key to the kingdom of Jesus. This is faith. Believing in what you don't see because you believe in Jesus. So the question this morning is simple. What do we see? How is that shaping our reality in the present? And do we live every day telling the story of eternity? Because with that brings hope. That God isn't done with the world yet. That God isn't done with my life. And that God ultimately will be bigger than the pain that I might experience in the here and now. And so he can take this so many different ways. I think a really easy ask this week. Man, highlight Hebrews 11.1. 1. Text it to yourself and to three friends. Write it on your mirror and, and believe it. Whether you have a hard time seeing through pain you're going through or maybe your kids are in a spot or your marriage is in a spot, we believe what Jesus says about healing, about love, about restoration, and about simply the fact that the pain of the present doesn't define our hope in Jesus. We believe in things we don't see because we believe in Jesus and what he's done for us. So the question is, how do we live at the story of eternity every single day? And really, that's what we're celebrating in three weeks when Easter gets here. That's what we come together to celebrate. That's what Jesus tried to get his disciples to celebrate together, that you are a people that might see pain now, but I'm going to turn that pain into something far more beautiful. It's why he said in John 16, right before he went to the cross, he said to disciples, truly I say to you, you will weep and you'll lament but the world will rejoice and you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. So we're going to end by taking communion because when we take communion, it is a reality that our reality isn't defined by the present. It's the reality that what we see so often doesn't define our present lenses of how we experience life. It's the reality that we believe in so much more because Jesus rose from the dead. And so when Jesus held up the cup to his disciples, he said, you're going to see this as something, but this is a sign that what you see isn't all there is. This might look like mourning now, but it will be hope. So every time we come to the table and take communion together, it's a reminder that Jesus is saying there's far more than what you see. There's far more hope. There's far more goodness. There's far more reason for joy, even in the really hard parts. So on the night that Jesus died, he took some bread and he broke it 
He said to his disciples, this is my body. It'll be broken for you. Eat and remember. And then he held up a glass of wine. He said, this is my blood that is shed for you. Every time you drink this, remember the death that I died for you and I'm no longer dead. That what you see isn't your reality as followers of Jesus. Let me pray for us.